morning. You guys can take a seat. My name is Kylie Joe, and I'm the FBC Kids Director here. Um, and I always joke with the kids that even though they think they're getting away from me on a fifth Sunday, they are not. Um, I get the privilege of reading um, the scripture this morning, and we get to jump into a story after the song at which we just sing is perfect. Um, something I always tell our children, we hear lots of stories in our lives, we watch lots of stories in our lives, but when we look at the scripture, we're looking at true stories. They truly happened, they are real. And um, so I always ask the kids to put that in their hearts and mind as we hear what God has for us. So let's read together Luke 24, 25 through 35. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we were talking, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Thank you, Kylie Joe. Hey, we are almost done with the book of Luke. If you've been with us through the book of Luke, we've been in uh, this study for a little while now. So we have this week and next week, and then we will conclude our uh, study in uh, the book of Luke. And we'll begin this summer. We're going to look at Psalms. This summer, we're going to have a different Psalm of each uh, Sunday throughout uh, the coming summer. So if you want to prepare for that, go ahead and read the Psalms. Because <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which ones. So you're going to have to read them all every week. So you're ready to go. I'm kidding, sort of. God, we thank you for these moments where we can join you as we look in your word. Our prayer, God, is that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word and change our hearts. Give us faith to believe. Give us humility to repent. Uh, give us courage to trust you and to be lifted up in the glory of the risen Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As Seth mentioned, when we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the risen Christ as we ought to, and that time is filled with joy and celebration and hope. And it's timely, in fact, when we celebrate Easter, of course, we celebrate it during the springtime, and the springtime just for us normally is a time where we feel sort of a sense of new life. You know, uh, trees and flowers are blossoming, and the, allegedly the temperature is increasing uh, outside a little bit. So there's a sense of newness in the time of year, and also a sense of newness, newness as we celebrate uh, Easter. And what's interesting, when we think about the people who were alive during the time of Christ and his resurrection, is how differently they experienced that resurrection than we celebrate it. Uh, we celebrate it with newness and life and hope and joy and excitement, but the reaction of the people during that time was none of those things, typically. It was, in fact, uh, shocking that many people during that time were, were sad and disappointed with what was, with what was going on. So uh, Kylie Joe read one portion of the text that we're going to look at this morning. I want to read the beginning of it, if you don't mind, beginning in verse 13, and you can follow along with me in your copy of the scripture. Uh, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, that very day, and if you're wondering what day that was, it was Sunday, the day of the resurrection. And just prior to this uh, passage, uh, a couple of women had gone out to the tomb and discovered it empty, and a couple of angels had told them Jesus would be was risen. So that very day, two of them, that is two of the disciples, not of the twelve, but two of those who had followed Jesus, Jesus were going to a village named Emmaus, and that village was about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking, what? Sad. Isn't that weird? First Easter, sad. Okay. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened in the last, in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. These guys were disappointed with what had happened. Verse 17, right at the end of verse 17, tells us their attitude as they were walking along. They stood still when Jesus asked them what they were talking about, looking sad. So when Jesus said, what are you guys talking about? They stopped in their tracks. You can think, you know, they're walking towards Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Not a, precisely sure which city this is. But it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're walking along, making their way to their hometown. And Jesus asked, what are you guys talking about? And their reaction is sadness. They, they not only felt sad, they looked sad. We're very good at feeling sad and looking happy, right? That's a skill. These guys felt sad and looked sad. We're making no effort to hide it. And their disappointment is because they were hoping for something that didn't happen. They were experiencing sadness. So disappointment and sadness here, at least in this passage, is when our relationship with God is based on what we expect and understand ought to happen, and then something else does. And then we experience disappointment. We experience sadness. We expect a certain thing to happen. We know God and we love God. And here's what we expect ought to happen in our life for the world around us. That's what's going on with Cleopas and his buddy. They expect a particular thing to happen. Something different happens than they expected. And the result was disappointed. So here's the question I want us to ask today. It's very inspiring. Are you ready? Are you disappointed with God? And you, can, you don't have to answer out loud. And I'm going to want us to approach this from a couple of ways today. So I want us to understand why that happens in a little more detail than we've just covered. And then understand what, what do we need to do about that? What's the next step? How do we approach that when things that are happening in our life and we say, well, here's what I thought God was doing and here's what he did. I'm not sure if I'm okay with what he's up to. How do we approach that? What's the right way to think through that? And process that. So the first thing, are you disappointed with God? Well, we're going to look at what happens in this passage. We need to evaluate our expectations. We need to think about what we're expecting and evaluate it. There's a popular Christmas movie, and the protagonist of this popular Christmas movie is a guy named Clark. Half the room now knows who it is. He's expecting a bonus. He's expecting a large bonus. In fact, he's so sure of this bonus, he puts a down payment on a pool for his family. When the bonus arrives, now I don't want to give away how the movie goes, because I know some of you haven't seen it. When the bonus arrives, instead of getting the large bonus he was expecting, the company decided that year to provide for its employees the Jelly of the Month Club subscription. Now for me, that's a win. I love jelly. Jelly, that sounds fantastic. Unless there's like a jalapeno and jelly involved. No, thank you. So he gets the jelly of the month club. And as if you've seen the film, Clark, as you might expect, is a little disappointed, isn't he? Yeah, a kidnapping is involved. So Clark is, why is he disappointed? He got a bonus, didn't he? He got, a, the, the reason for his disappointment is he was expecting a large cash bonus and he received a jelly of the month club subscription. So, for example, if he had been expecting no bonus and he got a Jelly of the Month Club subscription, he might have said, wow, 
I get different jellies every month. This is going to be great. I can't wait for it. But the disappointment is the missed expectation. Here's what I was convinced based on all of the evidence and my experience, what was going to happen and what ought to have happened. And when it doesn't happen, I experience disappointment. So the reason the disciples on their way to their town of Emmaus were sad is they had hope in Jesus, which they should have had. But they had hoped that Jesus was, would do some things Jesus did not plan on doing. So they had hope in Jesus. Good, right? But they had hoped that Jesus was going to do some things that Jesus was not planning on doing. So when Jesus did not do the things that Jesus did not plan on doing, that the disciples expected him to do, what did they experience? Sadness and disappointment. So verses 13 through 16, we have these two guys walking home from Jerusalem. And their discussion, the way it's phrased here, is they were uh, having a discussion that was emotional. So this was a discussion that involved uh, loud voices and a little bit of crying. And if you were a distance from these two guys, you would have known what they were talking about. Because it was one of those kind of conversations where there's some emotion involved in it and, and there's some tenseness involved in it. So they're discussing the current events and these current events are of course the weekend where Friday Jesus was crucified and then on Sunday his tomb was found empty and they're discussing these things and you might wonder what they were discussing but obviously based on what we know in the passage they were discussing but this happened but I thought this was going to happen. They're trying to make sense of everything that is going on in the, the world around them. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus walks up and joins them. Jesus, it says, drew near and went with them. And their, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And you might wonder, well, what was happening? Did God keep them from recognizing Jesus? Or did Jesus' appearance have a, enough of a difference of what he looked like prior to being raised that maybe they didn't recognize him? Or maybe Cleopas and his buddy are just not real bright. <laughs> These are all good options. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever met somebody that you didn't recognize right away. And so it could just be that with, with all the things going on, and of course the last time they saw Jesus, he was hanging on a cross. And so uh, they would have maybe expected him to appear differently than, than he did. But Jesus walk along, walks along and suddenly joins them. And, and it's fantastic. Uh, Jesus asked them, what are they talking about? Now, did Jesus ask this question to gain information? No, Jesus did not need any information. Did he, in fact, know what they were talking about? Of course he did. Everybody within a one-mile radius probably knew what they were talking about. So what Jesus is doing is he's trying to draw them out. He wants to hear from them. He wants to hear what's going on. He wants them to say what's going on to him. And you may not recognize this, but this is an act of grace. This is the risen Savior walking with two guys who think he's dead. And he wants to gently have a conversation with them to draw them to a place of faith. Did he have to do that? No. What could he have done? He could have joined them and smacked them upside the head. <laughs> What's up with you guys? He could have been insulting. He could have been condescending. He could have been judgmental. But he did none of these things. He had an intention here to, through conversation, draw them to a place where they could see him not through their preconceived notions, but through the purposes of God. So Jesus joins them and he asks them, uh, what are they talking about? And they are stunned by his ignorance. And that's, it says they stood still and looks at he, They're walking along and Jesus said, what are you guys talking about? And they stand, they look at him like, what? And then they're, they're of course, they're, they're forlorn, they're sad. They're stunned that he doesn't know what's going, along, going on as well as, feeling this sense of sadness. They've got to give him bad news. As a Jew, they have to give him bad news. The, the one we thought was going to bring us hope didn't. So now they have to break the bad news to the risen Savior that he's dead. In some ways, their response to Jesus indicates they think that any Jew that didn't know what had happened in Jerusalem that weekend was derelict in their duty. Any good Israelite within the vicinity of Jerusalem should have been keenly aware of what was going on. And this guy it doesn't know what's going on, 
something is wrong with them. So we ask them, what are these things? What are these things that you are uh, talking about? Verse 19, he said to him, what things have gone on? He wants them to explain to him what things they're thinking about. He wants them to explain to him what are they disappointed about. That's why he says, well, tell me what's going on. Tell me. He wants them to say out loud why they're so disappointed with him. Of course, they haven't recognized them, recognized him yet. Look at they, how they describe the work of Jesus. They've got all of their facts right. They know the Messiah concerning Jesus of Nazareth. This is the second part of verse 19. He was a man who was a prophet. Is that correct? Yes, Jesus is the prophet predicted by Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Was Jesus mighty? Yes, walked on water, raised the dead, healed the sick, healed the blind and the deaf and the crippled, got rid of leprosy. Miracle of miracles, he healed a mother-in-law. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's grace and mercy right there, isn't that? It's fantastic. He did, you're looking, when did he heal a mother-in-law? Some of you are doubting. No, don't doubt. It wasn't his mother-in-law, obviously. Don't be It's Peter's mother-in-law. <laughs> he was mighty indeed. And he was mighty in word. Was he a good proclaimer of the gospel? Yes. Every, every time he spoke, he said, man, how, how does this guy teach with such authority? Everybody was stunned by the power of his teaching. He was powerful in word before God and all the peoples. And, and how he was delivered up by the chief priests to be crucified. Do they have all their facts right? Yeah. These guys know what happened. They understand the Messiah. They understand Jesus seemed to fit the Messiah. They even know their Bible. If these guys went to a church Bible trivia competition, if people still do that, these guys probably would have won. These guys aren't ignorant of their scriptures. These guys aren't lukewarm believers. These are guys who understood their Bible, but expected God to do something different than he did, and they were disappointed, and they were sad. So they had all of their facts correct. Jesus was this powerful one we thought was the Messiah, but he didn't do what we thought he was going to do. What did they expect him to do? Look at verse 21. We find out why they're so disappointed. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And he didn't. Maybe we should say it this way. He did, but not the redemption they wanted. He had the gall to only redeem them from their sin. And he failed to redeem them from Rome. In all the difficulties that their life entailed, which redemption should include as people who understood their Old Testament. Whenever God re redeemed his people from their evil and they repented in the Old Testament, they would, God would save them from the Assyrians and the Amorites and the Moabites and the Philistines and the Babylonians. God was always raising up judges to save them both spiritually and politically. And they failed to recognize, no, God was saving you from human difficulty to help you understand to pursue God for forgiveness. So they expected, sure, we'll take your forgiveness of sins, but we expect you to also get rid of Rome. But now that Jesus has provided forgiveness of sins and eternal life, who cares who's in charge of the politics? And they were disappointed. We hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. We wanted Jesus to save us from Rome. And from their perspective, Jesus the Messiah was not alive. He was still dead. And Rome was still as powerful as ever. Can you see how disappointed they would be? We thought Jesus would do this. He didn't do it. And now we're distraught. The problem was not with Jesus. It's what they thought Jesus was going to do. So are we disappointed with God from time to time? Sure. We need to evaluate what we think God ought to do and what we expect him to do. Now, we should recognize that in the week of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, there are reasons to be sad. Is it sad that Jesus was mistreated by Rome? Absolutely. Is it sad that Jesus died? Yes. Death is always sad. Jesus himself wept at Lazarus' funeral. Death should remind us that sin has ruined God's creation. Uh, was there injustice occurring? Of course. Injustice occurred to 
Jesus. Injustice occurred to the disciples. So there are reasons to be sad. But they're not sad because of all these things. They're sad because God didn't do what we expected him to do. That's a different kind of sadness. It's one thing to be sad because of the realities of what the world's like. It's a whole other thing to be sad because I thought God would get rid of Rome and he didn't. And so now I'm disappointed. Now the problem is with God. Are we disappointed with God? When that's the case, we need to take some time to evaluate what we expected God to do and, and, and think. Is that what God really promised to do. So what can we do about that? How can we approach our disappointment and expectations in a way that brings us back to the purposes of God? It's real simple. Take God at his word. Another great movie, this one I can actually mention the name so I don't get emails. It's the, the best sports movie, I think, and the best basketball movie. It's a movie called Hoosiers. Anybody seen this film? Fantastic film. So at the end of the film, I don't want to give away how it ends, but the, the team wins. <laughs> Spoiled it. So the last play, the good guys have to make the final shot to win the game, and the coach comes in and gives the play, and he says, listen, everybody thinks Jimmy's going to make the shot. He's going to be the decoy. We're going to have another guy take the shot. And all the team members, all the team goes, you could see the disappointment on their faces. And Gene Hackman playing the coach, he says, well, what's wrong with you guys? And Jimmy, I think he only had two lines in the movie, but this is what Jimmy said. I'll make it. That's it. That's all he said. It's the whole line. Took him two weeks to memorize it. <laughs> I'll make it. That's it. If you, if you want to win this game, you give me the ball, it's going in. It's not, a, it's all will make it. And so the coach in that moment had to decide, am I going to take Jimmy as word or, or not? And he did. He said, all right, Jimmy's taking the last shot, drew up the play, and what happened? I'm going to tell you how it ends, but Jimmy makes it. <laughs> the disciples have their hopes renewed. These two disciples, their hope is renewed, not when God fits his plan to their expectations, but when they see God's plan in the scriptures as it really is. Their eyes are opened, and then they believe what God is doing, and they act on it. So God's scripture reorients their hearts to what God is doing and their hope is renewed. Their expectations are pulled back into the purposes of God by his scripture and when they see it, they trust God and they take action. And then their hope is renewed. This is how the disciples experience new hope. Look again at verses 22 through 24. They, they were having trouble understanding the events of that weekend in light of their, were their expectations. Look in verse 20, 22. Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. They did not find his body. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, but some were with him and went to the tomb and they found it like the women said, but him they did not see. So these guys wanted to see Jesus. What they're saying is we understand the body is gone. We're not sure where it is. But until we see the body of Jesus, until we see Jesus himself, we're not really going to put any stock on what these women have told us. They failed to heed what Jesus has said several times. Luke chapter 9 verse 22. This is what Jesus said early in his Ministry. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day do away with Rome. No, that's not what it says. On the third day be raised. That's what he said. He said, here's what's going to happen. I mean, I don't know how much clearer Jesus needed to be. Here's what Jesus said. He repeated it again over in Luke chapter 18, verse uh, 31. Luke 18, verse 31. Taking the 12 disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. On the third day, they will or he will rise. Verse 34. They understood none of these things. Water is wet, sky is blue. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So 
They had trouble understanding all of these events. Even though Jesus himself had given them, here's what's going to happen. They were having trouble fitting this into what they thought God's plan was. They understood the word. They understood what Jesus had said. They didn't understand what it meant. They, they couldn't get their mind around the idea. He is going to rise from the dead. So how did Jesus bring them around to reorient their life? What's interesting, he had the Bible study that all of us wish we would have been there for. Look at uh, verses um, 25 and 27. This is a great way to start a Bible study. If you lead a Bible study or home group, here's your script for today if you're doing that. Oh, foolish ones. Start every Bible study with that. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things? Look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This phrase he's using here, he's saying Moses, first five books of the Bible, the prophets, that's all the prophets, major and minor, Isaiah, Jeremiah, but also Zechariah and Malachi. And he also says all of the scripture. Here's a way that he is talking about the, what we call the Old Testament. He went cover to cover of the Older Testament and showed how he had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. Now that would take a little bit of time. Thankfully, and I did the math, the average person walks between two and four miles per hour. And if you were walking, say three miles per hour. Now this is a pretty hilly part of the world. Maybe it would take them two and a half to three hours to get from Jerusalem which it, and to Emmaus, which is, according to the passage here, about seven miles away. So wouldn't that be fun to take a two and a half, three hour walk with Jesus and have him just go through the Old Testament? Wouldn't that be cool? Well, Cleopas and um, whoever the other guy was, they were still a little bit thick. Took them a little bit of time to get their head around it. But Jesus, what's interesting is he takes them to the scripture. He takes them to their Bible to show them what they ought to believe. Isn't that interesting? He's healed people. He's walked on water. He's raised from the dead. He's prophesied about the future, and it has all come true. But when it comes time to have a person grapple with what's going on in their heart, what does he do? He opens his Bible and says, guys, let's look at the Scripture. Because Jesus understood the Scripture is the revelation of God to the world. And he tells them Jesus had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? Because Genesis, you would have said, you disobeyed. You rebelled against God by, by abandoning God in his ways. And so now your relationship with God is ruined because you're a sinner. God didn't ruin the relationship we did. We abandoned God in his ways. And he said, but God took the initiative to come and save you. Where would he have gone in that? Exodus. The people of God were captive in their sin and rebellion, but God saved them out of their captivity to become the people of God when they trusted him and he brought them out of bondage in, in Egypt into being the people of God passing through the Red Sea. And that would have been, look, you, God saves his people. Did they call for God for help? No. Who, God came to them for help. He took initiative. And he called the people to trust him, to become the people of God and pursue him in righteousness by telling him, you need to turn away from your sin, your worship of all the gods of Egypt and all the gods of the Philistines and everybody else and turn from your sin to God in faith and worship him as God alone. And we've gone all through the Old Testament saying, this is where life is. Life is found in relationship with God based on your faith. Trust God. He will cleanse you of your righteousness when you turn to him for your hope and salvation. That's the gospel. So God, Jesus shares the gospel with these guys from the Old Testament and says, I have come and I have fulfilled all of these things. In Christ, he has done away with sin, so sacrifice is no longer needed. In Christ, we are delivered from bondage to sin and death and now given freedom in him in life and righteousness and in Christ like Israel anticipated a future in the promised land we anticipate in Christ a future in his kingdom when it comes one day so this is the gospel if you want to be reunited reunited with Christ it's by faith trust him that he has forgiven you and you experience new life the question is what do you want from God do you want life that lasts forever based on righteousness in Christ through faith or do you want Jesus just to make your life here a little better? 
You want Jesus so that when you go to the store, you can pray and get a parking, lot, parking spot close to the door. Or when problems arise, you can go to God and say, look, a, a bill has showed up, or an illness has showed up, or my car broke down, or my spouse is acting like they act. And I don't know what to do about it. So, God, I need you to fix my, what? I need you to fix my problems. And God sometimes has the gall to remind us, I'm here to save you from sin and death. And we get disappointed that he's not saving us from our problems. And that's what was going on with the disciples. We don't want to be saved from sin and death. We want to be saved from Rome. So this disappointment thing isn't a new thing, and it's something we've picked up the baton and carried very, very well. The question is, do you want relationship with God that lasts forever based on righteousness in Christ by faith, or do you just want God that makes your life a little bit better? And that kind of theology, I call it the bacon bit theology. Do you know what bacon bits are? They take an ordinary salad and make it edible. And that's what you want from Jesus. You want Jesus to be the bacon bits of your life. Life is hard, but sprinkle some Jesus bacon bits on it. And now suddenly I can handle it. Really? I didn't, no, thank you. If, if all you want is a little bit better life, Jesus isn't your guy. If you want eternal life that lasts forever, he's got that for anybody who comes to him by faith. This is where disappointment Lie. So Jesus works his way cover to cover in the scriptures. I want to refer just to a couple of places. Now, kids, I want to remind you, this is the spot where dad's getting a little restless, okay? So just be patient with dad if he's really coloring on the color sheet and uh, hand him the iPhone and let him watch a video. Uh, what, what, what are all the dads watching now? Is it Bluey? Okay, that's what all the dads, yes. <laughs> Never seen it. I'm okay with Bluey. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm down. Okay, uh, moving on. I have nothing on Bluey. Uh, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Philip was moved by the Spirit, and he saw an Ethiopian official in his chariot reading from Isaiah. And this Ethiopian official wasn't sure about what he was reading. And the Ethiopian said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet in Isaiah say this? Is he talking about himself or about someone else? Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture. He told him what? The good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is the passage that the Ethiopian was reading from. And, and I'm going to read Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to read it and not make any comment. But I want you to recognize that Jesus and Philip and the Holy Spirit reminds us that Isaiah 53 is talking about who? Jesus. Here we go. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men, uh, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
Here is Isaiah by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit nearly 600 years before the birth of Christ writing such a detailed account of Christ's life and sacrifice that in my opinion it could easily stand in for the book of Romans. Here we have all our sinners. Here we have Jesus is pierced for our sins. Here we have the one who stood in for us even though we didn't esteem him. Even though we were like Cleopas and his buddy disappointed that he had the annoying, stubborn-headedness to merely come and save us from our sin without fixing anything that actually matters. And we didn't esteem him. And, and nonetheless, he comes to us and offers us new life in him by faith. This is the hope that we have. This is the only hope Christ offers. Eternal life for those who will trust him when they agree with him that they are Sinners. Okay, let's look at verse 28. What happened when Jesus did this great Bible study? Luke, what, did I say verse 28? Try to stay with me. Luke, Luke 24, verse 28. I also am trying to pay attention as well. <laughs> they drew near to the village. Uh, he acted as if he was going further, which I think is just hilarious. I'm going to keep going. And, and, uh, and they said, no, you got to stay with us. The day was almost over. It's almost nighttime. And so they're getting this, and they convince him to stay with us. The day is now uh, far spent. So he went in, and he ate bread with them, reminding us again that he is the risen Savior. He's not a ghost. He's going to have a meal with them, and he breaks the bread. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. In that moment, he vanished. He disappeared from before them, which is what Jesus could do in his resurrected body. Their eyes were opened because of the ministry of the scriptures in their heart by Jesus. The word of God and the, the truth of God's word opened their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. And their eyes were opened both by the power of the word and the work of God himself in their lives. There's another parable and uh, we'll get ready to close with this. There's a parable. It's in Luke chapter 16. It's the parable, parable of Lazarus and the rich man. If you don't know this parable, I'm just, I'll briefly review it. There were two guys, a rich man and Lazarus. Don't know the rich man's name other than rich dude. And then we have Lazarus who was poor and he was covered with sores. Both of these guys die. The rich man, because he didn't know God, he goes into the place of judgment, separated from God. Lazarus, because he knew God, goes into the place of paradise, the place of blessing. So he's at Abraham's side. For some reason, according to the parable anyway, the rich man was able to have a conversation with Lazarus. And he says to Abraham, hey, would you mind having Lazarus bring me a little sprinkle of water? My tongue is hot in this place of torment. And Abraham says, uh, that's not really going to happen, buddy. It's not how it works. And then the rich man says, I beg you, this is verse 27, I beg you, send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus to my father's house. I mean, first of all, that's arrogant. Here's Lazarus. He's experiencing the first comfort he's experienced his entire life. And rich guy says, no, send him back. Very nice. The rich guy says, I have five brothers, so he may warn them that they would also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to the rich guy, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear the scripture. Verse 30, he said, no, Father, Abraham, if, if someone goes to them, though, from the dead, they will repent. Abraham replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Why do we believe? Because Christ, by his spirit, opens our eyes to who he is through the word of God. We're convinced, though, that if something powerful and miraculous, if a dead man stood before us and told us about himself, that certainly we would believe more than we do today. How did that work for Cleopas and his buddy? What opened their eyes to the power of, the, of God and his work? The scriptures. And what was Lazarus, or what was the rich man told? Will his brothers believe if they see a person risen from the dead? What's the answer? Not if they disbelieve the scripture. If we don't believe the scripture, nothing will convince us of who Christ is. Our eyes are open to what God is doing through the scriptures. That's how we see Jesus mo most clearly. If we won't see the word, if we don't see God through the scriptures, we won't see him. If we won't see him through the scriptures, we won't see them. Good news. Look at how this passage ends and we're going to close with their response. Acts chapter 24. 
And kids, if you're wondering, when I say we're getting ready to close, that, that really means nothing. Your parents know that. Verse 33. That same hour, what hour was it? Remember what it said earlier? It was late. Remember, they'd, been, they'd walked, got almost to Emmaus. They told Jesus to come join them because the day was almost over. The sun was going down. That same hour, they returned to Jerusalem. See, they saw Jesus through the scriptures. Then their eyes were open to see Jesus. And then what did they do? Well, let's get some rest. Make sure we're refreshed. No, what'd they do? We got to get out of here. We got to get back to Jerusalem and tell people what happened. They found the 11 and those that were still gathered together. So late into the evening, they find the disciples and everybody gathered and they're not asleep. They're, everybody's trying to get their head around what is going on. The Lord has risen indeed. And all the women there said, welcome to the party. Guys, come on, seriously? <laughs> they said what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So they heard the word of God. Their eyes were open to Jesus. They believed and then they acted. They did something because they believed. They went back to Jerusalem to be witnesses. We see Christ our eyes are open to the truth of Christ in our hearts through his words. We put faith in him because we want to walk away from the bondage of sin and walk into the life of righteousness in him. And faith in Jesus moves us to act in obedience. That very hour, they walk to Jerusalem to be witnesses of the risen Christ. Three things and then to uh, kind of think about and then we'll close with a song. I want to give you one example of how expectations can get us sideways. We say God is good, we agree. God is love, we agree. I, I hope we're not going to argue over these things. God hears prayer, we agree. If a good God who loves me hears my prayer, doesn't answer it, I'm disappointed. He's good, he's loving, and he hears prayer. So God, when he doesn't give me what I think ought to be, I experience disappointment because no God who is good and loving and attentive would fail to grant what I think ought to be. See how that works? And you've had this happen many, many times. How could a good, loving, and attentive God not grant this thing that I think ought to be? We want the world... To, to be the way we think it ought to be, and we think God should agree with us on what the world should look like. Both our little world in our sphere of influence as well as the world at large. And when we pray for God to intervene in the world in ways we think must be and he doesn't, we've, we sometimes assume the problem is not with what I think ought to be. The problem is, that God isn't paying attention or he's too busy. We are disappointed when, when God doesn't fit our perspective because we, have, we take our view of what ought to be in our family and what ought to be in our neighborhood and in our job and in our bodies and in our politics and we anoint those things, not, sometimes not on purpose, and say, since I'm a Christian and I think this about these things, God must also but what if he doesn't? Job learned this lesson over and over again. God told him, you know, I actually th know a few things more than you. And we get disappointed when God refuses to shape his kingdom according to what we think ought to be. And we experience that disappointment. What we must recognize is God in what he does do and what he chooses not to do is still what? Good, loving, and attentive. In fact, God, because he is good, loving, and attentive, he would not do anything other than what he intends to do, even if we want something different. That's one example of where our expectations get sideways. How come God isn't answering this prayer the way I think ought to be? He must be off duty. Or there must be something wrong with me. But could it be that he's up to something a little bit different than we're expecting? That could be the case. Second thing I just want you to think about, do you think from looking at Jesus' walk with these disciples, do you think Jesus takes the scriptures seriously? Seems like he does. 
the risen Savior, when he has an opportunity, at least in the book of Luke, to first encounter his disciples, what's he do? Opens his Bible. You would think anyone who doesn't need to open his Bible to lead them to himself would be Jesus. He certainly could just do a miracle, but he doesn't. He opens his scripture. God takes his word so seriously that he intends to accomplish everything his, his word says without exception. And the simple thing I think we need to ask ourselves if we're honest is do we take his word seriously as well? Knowing how serious our, our Savior takes his scripture and what it means and how it changes hearts, do we also take it that seriously? Or do we want our heart changed in some other means? A powerful experience or something else. We, we want something that happens besides just opening the Bible, reading it, and finding Jesus. I'll tell you, when we take the word seriously, the word we take very, very seriously when it confirms what we already think, doesn't it? When we can quote a scripture that confirms who ought to win an election, and when we can quote a scripture that confirms how our kids ought to behave, or how our spouse ought to behave, or what our boss ought to do, then we love the Bible. But the question is, we need to take the word seriously, because that's where we find Christ, and that's where we have our hearts changed. King Josiah, you heard of this guy? Good king or bad king? Good king. What did he do when he read the Bible? He wept because he read his scripture, looked at his heart, and found something wrong with his heart. Unfortunately for many of us who are believers, myself included, we read the scripture to make sure our hearts are okay. That's not why you read the Bible. You read the Bible to find Christ and then look at your own heart and say, oh my goodness, I'm not even close. God have mercy on me, a sinner, and then he changes our hearts and we believe and trust him that he can change us and then we act. We do something because he trusts, we trust him. So that's the last thing I want you to think about. What should we do? If you find Christ in his scripture and he opens your heart to the power of the gospel, these two disciples had to go back to Jerusalem. When you trust Jesus and his word changes you, faith leads to obedience. A life conformed to the kingdom of Christ. So let me give you a couple of things that you might think about. And these are really, really annoying. I always share these with you because I think of them and they annoy me. And so I figure I'm not going on my own on this. First one, right now, think about it. Don't say it out loud, please. What sin do you need to confess today and commit to the Lord to pursue holiness? If you believe God and you know what his word teaches and you know exactly what I'm talking about because it popped immediately into your mind. To believe Christ and nurture that disobedience is to tell Jesus he doesn't know what he's talking about. So if I'm going to trust Christ, what is the area of disobedience in my life that I know, and you've known about it for a while, you need to turn that over to the Lord in repentance and say, I'm going to walk with you in holiness in this area. Give me the power to overcome. When I don't, Lord, help me run to you. But I want my heart bent towards obedience. And what is that sin in your life you need to turn over to the Lord today so that you might pursue worship in him in righteousness? What is it in Christ's words that you need to take more seriously than you do? Are you someone like these disciples who because of God's uh, lack of work in your life, you have disappointment? Maybe we need to take seriously that God, he's given us eternal life. Maybe we need to take seriously his forgiveness. Maybe we were carrying sh uh, shame and guilt that we should set aside. Maybe we need to take serious what the Bible tells us about being servants to the people around us. Maybe we assume our neighbors and our friends and our family are there to make our lives happy instead of what Jesus says. I am a servant to all. So what is it in his word that you know he teaches us to do that we need to take more seriously? One thing on that, we had two people get baptized today, so I'm just going to touch on that. Maybe there's some people here who have put their faith in Christ for salvation and you have not been baptized. So I'm going to be nice. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you should be baptized as a believer. And if you are not baptized, you should be. I don't know how to say that. Am, am I being rude? Seth, am I, no, Seth is like, no, you're good. I'm trying to hold back. But, but that's what it means. It's a, it's a public statement. I trust Jesus for my forgiveness. And to say, I'm not going to be baptized is saying, Lord, I appreciate your commands. I'll take that as a good suggestion, but I think that's silly, so I'm not going to do it. Really? 
Really, that's, that's something that you might want to think about. We ought to make a public statement through baptism that we trust Jesus. Finally this, and I'll end with this. Maybe today you think about your own heart and you know you're not a believer. You've never put your faith in Jesus for salvation. Maybe you like church. Maybe you like Christians. Or maybe you don't. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence with them. Maybe you like Christian values. I know a lot of people in our country who love Christian values but aren't into Jesus. I think that's a little bit funny. To obey Jesus by faith, it's simple. You have to admit that you're a sinner, that your life does not conform to what God wants, that you do things and think things and want things that God does not want for you. So you have to admit, I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against God in his ways. And I need God to forgive me for my rebellion against him. And the Bible says what we do is we turn to God in faith. Say, God, I trust you. You'll forgive me for anything I've ever done. That's what he does. That's what the cross tells us. I want to turn to God to live his ways because I trust he will make me righteous from all of my sin, all of my selfishness, all of my pride. And what you need to do today is take God at his word and trust Jesus to forgive you of your sin and follow him in faith, knowing he will take you into his eternal kingdom in life that lasts forever. God, we thank you for your grace that you have shown us. There have been so many times in our lives where we must admit we have experienced disappointment with what you're up to. God, we pray that you would give us the power of your spirit and the truth of your word to humbly evaluate what we think you ought to be doing. And instead be willing, God, to understand you are doing precisely what you promised. Saving sinners, making us more like Jesus. God, I pray that you would make us a people of Christ that are committed to knowing you through your word. I pray, God, we would be people of the Bible and that we would be willing, God, to take you at your word. We would believe what it says. And more than that, God, because we trust you, we would put it into action by living lives of holiness and service and sacrifice, being witnesses to the risen Christ, to our families, our neighborhoods, in our world. I pray in particular in this moment, Lord, in a room of this size with this many people, I know there are many in here right now and they know it and they're wrestling with it and they're wishing that I would be quiet but I'm not going to let it go. They know they need Jesus right now. And I am praying in this moment that finally, Lord, you would move them to trust you for forgiveness. It's just a matter of in our hearts recognizing we are rebels. And you offer forgiveness to us when we come to you and say, I trust Jesus. I trust you that you forgive me of my sin. And I pray those individuals in this place, in this moment, would find hope in you by trusting Jesus. We thank you for for your life that you have given us. We thank you for the hope you have given us. We can't wait till you come back, Jesus, with your kingdom. We pray you would give us strength to endure until that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us and we'll close with a song.